Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody here this morning. And we are in our, for our communion Sundays, doing the little series, Beautiful Things, where we look at Psalm 100. And when, on our communion Sundays, I preach through the Psalms. It's something different. So for communion Sundays, just we purposely change things up, just have worship in a different place and preach on a different topic. And um, when I came across Psalm 100, we're going to read it in just a second, but it's, it's such a simple psalm, and I, and I just I read the words, and it's primarily a call to sing to God, to know God, and sing what we know about God. But there, there's just like these foundational truths in these six verses that really frame an entire worldview. If we believe, if we understand these simple words, we can apply our whole lives and every area of our lives to it. And it just hit home to me the idea that God, He created everything, He created it as good, and it's beautiful. And a lot of times we resist God's ways. Of course, we have a sin nature, and that's what sin does. It, it's the opposite of wanting to, um, to obey God and to enjoy God. So I just kind of using this psalm as a platform to preach through truths and also to look at modern day thinking uh, where we stray away from the truths as we that we find in Holy Scripture. So it's our beautiful things series. I'll say a little bit more about that, but let's go ahead and read Psalm 100. It's short and sweet. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. So that sounds simple, but those are foundational truths. If we believe, if we hear what the psalmist is saying and believe that, it means that everything has been created by God and not just created through God or by God, but everything is created for God. You and I are created for God. Colossians 1.16 says, For by Him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. So just going through life, understanding that the reason we're here is to live for God. We are for God. So God made us physical and he made us spiritual beings. So our purpose in life is to bring him glory. Our purpose in life is to live before him, to always be cognizant in everything we do, think, and say of the presence of God. And scripture tells us elsewhere that when we apply our lives to live in that way, to live as God created us to live before Him and for His glory. That is how we can gain the greatest pleasure in this broken, cursed world. doesn't mean that we will be suffering free. 
But it means that God offers us, even in this broken world, the best life possible simply by living before his face. What God has made, Scripture says, it's good. It's not just good in that it works, but it's good in a moral sense because God is perfect and everything he makes has meaning and goodness uh, in a spiritual, physical, and a moral sense. So it's, there's a rightness to everything that God does. It's just right. It's perfect. It's righteous. God has revealed himself in his word. He's given us his story. And as we read his story, even in this six verses of this psalm, what do we find but our story? It's in God's story that we find our story, our meaning, our purpose. We are the substory, if you will. And what that helps us understand is that in all of life, we are not the center. We're not the center of the universe. We're not here to glorify ourselves, to serve ourselves. And if we, try, if we live lives with that as our goal, we're going to be frustrated. Now, just to live the Christian life alone is hard, right? I mean, there are battles in it. And God never said it would be easy. But at least we have the presence of God and we have the truth. We know where we're headed and we have faith in him. But you remove these things and it just gets worse. I know and I'm sure most of you know, all of you know in some sense, the difference between living in the knowledge of God, knowing he's there, knowing he forgives sin, and then trying to figure life out on your own. And it's a world of difference. And I know firsthand to that. So we are subservient to God. And in this series, as I take these foundational truths, these are truths literally that we build a life on. And we have the, the slogan here at New Covenant, building on the rock. What's the rock? It is the truths. It's the person of Christ and the truths that he has shared with us. They're so powerful, they're so solid, they're so strong that you can stand on them and literally put your whole self on them and you can trust them. There's nothing in this world that is dependable as God and His truth. And when we don't know these truths or we don't believe them as we should, it's kind of like going through life, if I have to get from here to the back, on thinking that I'm standing on thin ice and that any minute now, any step I take in life, I might go through and drown or freeze to death or have a terrible experience one or the other. And a lot of times when we don't believe in God's truths as we should, we're, we're fragile. We're, we're skittish. And we're missing out on just, I can stand on this. I can build my life on this. I can trust God for his truths and not rely on my emotion or my flesh. So we want to build our lives on the rock. Proverbs says... The fool says in his heart, there's no God. And if we say in our heart, there's no God, then we're going to live as if there is nothing solid or dependable or true that comes from on high. There's a sense in which I've taken this psalm and these beautiful truths, but then also, what does it look like in the lives of people, community, or nation who doesn't believe these truths? How will you view humanity? How will you view love? How do you find forgiveness? How do you get rid of your guilt? 
When you know you've done something wrong, what do you do with that? Or when you've harmed the people that you love the most? The world has answers to all of these things, but so does God. And bad ideas, bad answers have bad consequences to how we live. So there's also a sense in which we're looking at how people make decisions and live their lives without God in view. The 1983, in an address... um, a Templeton, the uh, Templeton Prize address, Alexander Solzhenitsyn offered this summer, he was back in 83, as an explanation for why all the horrors in that time, um, all the horrors of the Soviet Union, where millions of people were slaughtered. And he gave this explanation for, for the reason behind all of these horrors. And he says... Men have forgotten God. Men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. It makes such a difference in society, in our homes, in our lives, when we live as if God is there or as if God is not there. Christian scholar Rod Dreyer says, this is a valid explanation of the crises we face today in the West. There's a widespread falling away from the faith. We see it. I just recently read an article, um, came across my desk, how this is something new, and it began even before COVID. You think, oh, of course this would happen because of COVID. No, this actually happened in 2019 before COVID. And now there are more churches in the United States closing than there are opening. That's new. It's a new phenomenon. We're used to hearing about that in Europe. You know, all the, all the dead churches, the churches that are now museums, places to visit but not places to worship. So that's something new for us. But he goes on to say, There is disintegration of the family, a loss of communal purpose, erotomania, erasing the boundaries between male and female, and a general spirit of demonic destruction that denies the sacredness of human life. Because men have forgotten God, they have also forgotten man. That's why all this has happened. It makes a difference. So, in this series, where have we been? Where are we going? Well, we first looked at uh, abortion and the personhood theory versus God's view of, of humanity, the Bible's view, which is precious, sacred, creating the image of God. And the, um, the, the personhood theory or man's alternative answer, what makes us a valid human being, is that, you're, that they would purport that, yes, scientifically, we can't deny that you're born human, but you're not a person. They make a difference between a human and a person. You're not a person until you reach some kind of cognitive awareness of yourself. When do you do that? Whenever they say. It's kind of up for grabs. And this is in our, even in our laws in the United States as far as how do we value human life and decide what human life is. And then last time on Communion Sunday, we looked at biblical sexuality versus the hookup culture. And we found that the prevailing idea of sexuality in our um, culture 
is that basically it's just a rec- uh, sex is a recreational thing you do. It's just something you do on the weekend or like watching a movie one night and it's been completely removed from the sacred purpose. And we'll talk a little bit about that today that God had in mind. Today we're going to look at biblical marriage versus what is known as the social contract theory. And then probably the last one, if I can cram it into one sermon, we're going to look at biblical gender identity, um, homosexuality, same-sex marriage, gender identity, and so forth. But let me just say, when, when we hear today, and this is a little bit of a rabbit trail, but not in the sense of foundational truths. You might hear today this statement. I am a woman trapped in a man's body. And I don't know what you think about that statement. But just to even entertain the idea, that simple statement is two completely different beliefs and worldviews in one world. Like to believe that that could be remotely true, that it's possible for a biological female to be trapped in a biological male's body, for a a spirit and body to be divided, a mind and physical mass to be divided, is that possible in this world? For that to be possible, you have to come at it and believe completely different things than what Scripture teaches us. So the, the things that we hear today, almost as commonplace, and it doesn't even rattle us or alarm us anymore, it is just a sign that we're so immersed in non-biblical thinking that it becomes commonplace and we don't even realize that we are biting into non-scriptural ideas. We'll talk about that more in our next sermon. The thinking today, and you know this, it's kind of like the farther that we can push God out of our society because God's the enemy, Christianity's the enemy, The reason it's the enemy is because it's so oppressive. There's rules, the regulations. You don't just get to live impulsively. You don't get to enjoy all the pleasures that are out there to enjoy. It just suppresses you from being your true self and living the way you want to do, to live. And that's exactly right. Christianity does not let us live the way that we just want to live because it actually says, no, there's a right way. And a wrong way even to enjoy things. And of course it's all for the glory of God. The premise, as you know by now, of this series is that God makes beautiful things. And he makes, he wants to keep his beautiful things beautiful. And so he doesn't keep good things from us. What he does is he keeps his good, beautiful things good and beautiful. And the way he does that is by telling us how to interact with them, how to interact with each other, how to experience the things that God has made. So he gives us beautiful rules to keep beautiful things beautiful. He gives us stages of life. He gives us seasons. He gives us authorities. He's created all of these things. And that is God's story. And because it's God's story, it is our story. And anything less 
any other way to live does not fit into our universe if God is right, if God is true. It's not going to work. So today we look at another area that's often in the headlines, and that is marriage. We're always hearing something these days about the state of marriage. No, marriage is not right in the psalm. We didn't read it in these six verses. But again, I'm just taking the truths about God. He is God. There is no other God. He made us for Himself. Everything we see is for Him. Therefore, love, romance, the desire to have children, to procreate, to relate on this level, is created by God. And so we're going to look at that foundational truth. What's the prevailing attitude? If you were probably just say to Google a, a quick article on what's the prevailing attitude about marriage today, perhaps it could be best summarized by a quote found in a 2014 article out of the New Republic entitled, It's Time to Ditch Monogamy. And it says, The current model of lifelong cohabitating monogamous partnership has never been such an outdated ideal I would rather retain my single status with a few rewarding lovers to fulfill different needs at different times of my life. And that's pretty much a prevailing attitude. So in other words, marriage is not faring well, very well, or how we might understand marriage. Biblical marriage is not faring very well. Not surprisingly, and you can see this as well, young people are just losing interest in it. It's not a big deal. It's not something that boys and girls grow up dreaming about as much as it used to be. Young adults are saying, um, deciding that to say I do, it's not worth the hassle, it's not worth the risk. It's not worth the risk of possibly a divorce and a heartbreak. And it's not worth the loss of individual freedoms that entails is entailed in marriage. According to a report of the National Marriage Project, our culture is a low commitment culture described as sex without strings, relationship without rings. And there's a popular slogan today, put a ring on it. You used to hear that. Put a ring on it. If you really want a relationship, then let's get married. Let's not just do the the alternative. And you add to that all the different relationship options we have today, and they're just never ending. We've all we've been aware of polygamy, where you have more than wife, one wife, polyamory, where you. Decide that you can't just land on one person, but it might be three or four. That relationships that you have, that you love. Of course, we have homosexuality and and other things. So what's the problem? Is it the institution of marriage? Is the institution of marriage, uh, which in our society at one time was built on a biblical understanding of it, for the most part, it wasn't perfect, but for the most part, has the institution itself failed us? Or... Is it the people that come to the altar and say, I do, that are failing the institution or God's design of marriage? I think the obvious answer is that it's not the institution, it's not the good thing that God designed, but it's the people or our misunderstanding of how marriage is supposed to work. 
the Christian worldview of marriage is that God designed it. And that it plays a, an extremely important part in any society. According to the Bible, societies, communities, nations are built on family foundations, which begins with marriage. A commitment between a husband and a wife that may, by God's will, may result in bearing children. According to the Bible, you can't have a healthy society without healthy marital relationships. And there are endless statistics on the difference between solid marriages and broken homes. And I won't go into that. You can find those anywhere. But spiritually, uh, physics, so physically, God thinks so highly of marriage that it's upon the relationship between a husband and wife that entire societies are built upon. That's how important it is. And then physically, he has such, or, or spiritually, he has such a high view of marriage that it is marriage that is an earthly metaphor for the spiritual divine truth of how much God the Son loves his redeemed people, the body of Christ. I mean, God you thinks so highly of it that that is a metaphor. It is an earthly example. It's, it's an evangelistic tool. Marriage ultimately should point to God. So it's designed by God. It's between one man, one woman who enter into a perpetual covenant of exclusive, faithful love and commitment. A couple years ago, we didn't have a sweetheart banquet last year because we were trying to kind of stay alive, stay away from each other. But in 2019, uh, I quoted Dietrich Bonhoeffer at the sweetheart's banquet. He was uh, conducting a wedding ceremony and he told the couple this. It is not your love that sustains the marriage, but from now on, it is your marriage that sustains your love. Well, what does he mean by that? He's talking about the institution. When you get married, you are stepping into something that already exists. The idea behind it, the expectations, how it's supposed to work. God already has founded that. And when you come to the altar, you're, you're stepping into what God has already designed. You're stepping into the freedoms that it has, but also the boundaries that are there. And so that's what we are to... Uh, use as our our light, our guiding light in our marriage. That's where we're to find answers of how it works and to get through hard times is by going to Scripture, not our own feelings, not our own ideas, not popular culture. And when marriage is done with that idea, it can sustain anything. And it's designed to do just that. It means that the institution of marriage is bigger than any feeling I might have. It's bigger than any desire I might have. It's bigger than any kind of hurt that might come my way in a marriage relationship. It's created and sustained by the beautiful thing that God has created it as. It exists by its own right. And it's for our good and for God's 
glory. So we don't get to redefine it. We don't get to choose what it is or isn't. And by the way, marriage is a creation mandate. It's not just for the church. In the New Testament letters, there's lots of things that the apostles write about regarding marriage, but it was founded in creation. The two shall become one flesh. It is God's design for the world, this covenant relationship. For the purpose of procreation, if God wills. It's for the purpose of companionship. Scripture tells us it's not good for man to be alone. Uh, it's for the purpose of unity and teamwork. We are to take dominion, husband and wife. Take dominion, subdue the earth together, glorify God together. And it is for the purpose of revealing the mystery of Christ as he loves the church. So why does our society have such a low view of marriage? I mean, what happened out there that we could go from holding marriage as such a beautiful, wonderful thing, teaching it to our children as something desirous, and then to where I'm not so sure I even want it, to actually it's harmful for you and we need to completely do away with it. And there are those groups that say that about marriage. It's, it's terrible for our society. But how did we get to this place? Well, as you can imagine, there's a worldview behind it. There's a thinking behind it. And of course, it doesn't include God because you can't draw those conclusions if you start here. There's a thinking behind it and it just permeates. We begin to see it in advertising. We see it in worldviews are lived out and we see it everywhere. And so many people today, whether uh, we realize it or not, have a false idea of what marriage really is. Uh, we don't see it as a covenant. We see it more as a social contract. So the understanding of the modern day understanding of marriage is that we're not entering into this perpetual covenant designed by God with living by his rules, by his power. But it is a independent social contract. A Princeton professor said of his students without ever reading a word of Locke, a philosopher, they could reproduce his notion of the social contract without a doubt in the world. What he's saying is that people are living according to this. You may have never even heard the word social contract. And he's saying my students probably never heard or read Locke, but they're living it because it's everywhere in society. So let me just define a social contract. I'll give you a quick a crash course in it, and then we will close. So a contract. Now, remember, this is how modern society is thinking and wrestling with marriage. What is it? So a contract is a limited exchange of goods and services. So two sides come to an agreement. Uh, they work out an agreement that works to their advantage. And it, it, if at any time one of the parties defaults on the goods or the services then the other party has every right to get out of it because the whole reason that you went into it to begin with was because it was a benefit to you. So at any time when it's no longer serving your purpose, then you need to cut it. And the whole contract is based on the rules that you brought to the table and signed or agreed upon. It's a contract. So I'm guessing that just thinking along those, I, those lines, you might see where that could be a problem 
in a marriage relationship. So the crash course for the social contract theory is this. You'll remember in previous sermons that uh, there came a time in the era of man. We're in the age of salvation, we learned in the book of Second Peter. But if you cut mankind or Western civilization into different periods, there was the enlightened period that, enlightenment period that morphed into mo- what we know of as modernism. And basically, it's when we, man discovered science. Man discovered natural laws that God put in place. Many of these scientists are discoverers, inventors. They're Christians. And they're, they're enthralled with God's universe. And they're like, wow, he created these laws of nature that we can depend on, like gravity. Yes, if you jump off the building, you can be assured you're going to hit the ground. It, you're not going to, like, float up mysteriously. And, but what happened was we got arrogant as man. And we started to look at, wow, I can look at stuff under a microscope and I no longer need God to tell me how to live or what to do. I can see it for myself. And it wasn't long before God was out of the picture and people were saying God is dead. And actually the only reason he ever existed was because we had a weakness of our mind where we felt like we needed a papa or a mama or something out there to get us through hard times. But now we know all the answers. So needless to say... God was no longer the foundation of all things, like we read in Psalm. But when you take origins and beginnings and all of your understanding of who you are as a person and you throw it out, you've got to start from scratch. Okay, if it's not God and He's not our source and He's not there, then who are we, where are we going, why are we here? And how do we live? As Francis Schaeffer would say, how, do, how shall we now then live? So that is what our society is still wrestling with. We're still trying to discover who we are with disastrous results because we don't believe that God's already defined us. So you remove that theory. You have so thinkers and philosophers of the day, namely John Locke and Thomas Hobbes and uh, Rousseau, they pictured a man sprouting up from the ground like a fresh mushroom. He's free, he's fresh, he's unblemished, and he's unhindered. And the important thing in this thinking of how did man come about is that he, he comes into existence as a free being, completely free, unhindered agent, autonomous. So the emphasis now was if that's the nature of man, he's meant to be completely free, then we have to get rid of all the centuries of thought, rules, boundaries, faiths, religions. We have to strip man from all the stuff he's born into and he thinks he's obligated to so that he can start fresh. And when you find a person that starts fresh, ideally, the only obligation he has is the ones that he or she will enter into by their own volition. In other words, little contracts. So they envision a humanity and societies, people that are bartering together. This is how we relate to one another. We all have desires. And I look to you to see what you have that will benefit me. And then we enter into some kind of agreement or contract or whatever you want to call it. Because we can't be bound 
by anything. We can't have any obligations. If we do, we're not free. It, everything has to be on our terms. Now, in society, you see all the different groups in our society that are out there screaming, shouting, protesting to be heard and to be valued for what they think they are and how life should go. It's, there's all these competing ideas out there. That's, that's the notion because it's, this is, no, this serves my best interest. No, this serves my best interest. So the only hope of working it out is to find the good in it and to use one another. It's man-centric, anthro-centric. It's not at all God-centered. So what are some implications of this? Nancy Piercy, Nancy Piercy says in her book, first of all, it means that uh, as opposed to Scripture where God says, well, actually, I even had relationships in mind. I designed them like brother and sister. How are you to relate? Husband and wife, parents, grandparents, um, neighbor. He says, there's none of that. You don't come into an understanding that we have any obligation to anyone. So the idea of, am am I my brother's keeper? They would say, absolutely not. You have no obligation to any of your fellow man in any way. You're not born into that. That's oppressive to feel obligated to treat your neighbor as something other than what you want to treat them at. So that's the first implication. And then second... Social duties are no longer thought to arise from moral principles. In other words, what we have now is when you remove the duties and the obligations, there's no more right and wrong of any relationship. You just do what you're going to do for your own purpose. So there's no divine meaning. There's no spiritual meaning to it. It's all what serves your best interest You draw it up in some kind of contract or you just have a verbal contract, whatever. Uh, The the sole source of any sense of what's right and wrong only comes from what you decide it is based on your free desires. So it's all about my own advantage. Does that sound familiar to our Western society? Aren't we taught from cradle to grave these days, do what's at your own best interest? Only make decisions that's to your own advantage. Step on people's heads to get ahead. It's perfectly okay to do that if you understand humanity in this sense of the word. So there's no external obligations that are pressing upon us what's right and wrong. So you don't have to feel guilty. You can decide that on your own. So the first line of... Rousseau's book, The Social Contract, says, Man is born free and everywhere he is in chains. You can't be free if you're in chains. A lot of the revolutions that we have experienced are because it's man's new understanding of himself trying to set himself free from all of these social, moral, religious obligations that have enchained him. So let's just summarize this So we're clear. Because as believers, we want to live lives that are pleasing to God. And if we believe that His beautiful designs really are the best that we can experience in this life, the things that we miss out on, the meaning and the depth, the reason why we even do what we do, 
And we want to live according to God's word. We want to, because we have a mission. If you think about that Western view, there's no mission other than to serve yourself. There's nothing in there about salvation. It's it's all self-interest. There's no... There's no goal or plan other than what you want to build for yourself. And yet, you step into the church and the kingdom of God, and there's something that already exists. And by the way, both can't be true, right? I mean, either what God says is true or it's not. And Scripture says, in the end, I'll even tell you how it, it, it ends. I'll tell you how the world ends, and I'll tell you what happens after that. God is so good to us to give us that. So as believers, we want to live with this biblical understanding and cherish marriage. God created all things, including the institution of marriage, for His glory, for our good. All the rules, all the things we're allowed to do in our relationship, and the things it's exclusive, the things we're not allowed to do. It being the fact that it's designed between one man and one woman. And it is this biblical understanding that forms societies, communities. We have our own community here. We have our own sense of community here. We we go to each other for a lot of things, don't we? We share meals, but we go to each other for advice. We go to each other for prayer. We go to each other for counsel. We're involved in each other's lives. I know a lot of the struggles that you guys have in your lives. And we go to God's word to help us through these things whenever we're faced. That's a biblical community. We're building on the rock. Not perfectly. But God's given us these resources in his word and each other to make it through, to pilgrim through for his glory. So we are forming societies and relationships and our kids are watching us. Our kids are looking at our marriages. Do they work? Is what God says true? How do you get through hard times? They're watching these things to see how we behave. God is good and what he has created has moral purpose. And just like we're born into a family, we didn't ask for the parents we have. We were born into that. We didn't ask for our siblings. We just get them for better or for worse. We're born into this world and we're born into it the way God has designed it. And our choices are to be made in conformity to God. Whereas the postmodern view, it's, it's, um, it has its own creation story. It has its own heroes, uh, its own beginnings. And in this story, you find a man with no obligations. He's not obligated to, to God or his fellow neighbor. You find self-interest. Uh, you find a, a, a society that only puts obligations upon itself because it serves them. You'll find when you apply this to marriage, it means that, sure, I'll agree with you on some things as long as they serve my goal and fulfill me. And I'll even make sacrifices and I'll do things that you ask me to do, but only because it serves my purpose in the end. And that's how that understanding would be applied in a marriage. Biblical view of God is is that he's good, he's wise, and we are the freest we can possibly be by living according to his word. The social contract view, man is the ultimate authority. We don't answer to anybody or anything 
And actually, I'm only free when I answer to myself and when I don't have to give an account to any single person in the universe. So you can see when you look at a relationship as really just an exchange of benefits, an exchange of goods, an exchange of this is just another way for me to get what I want. It has nothing to do with the divine plan of being salt and light in a dark world, a fallen place. You can see why the understanding of marriage has has devolved to the point where not only is it just a loss of interest, but people are even questioning if we're even supposed to have it anymore. Is it really good for us? Because it seems like everywhere I turn, it's nothing but failure in it. And I would argue that the problem is my thinking. The problem is my heart. And my failure to conform to what God has already put into existence. And when we... Scripture says God's word is like a hammer. When you go against the hammer, you're going to feel it. And our relationships and our marriages are feeling it. There is a lot of pain. This idea of freedom and only answering to yourself, it doesn't work in real life. There is a lot of brokenness and pain out there because of our naivety or rebellion or just believing lies, not checking into it, and living according to the answers that the world gives. Scripture makes it clear who's behind anything that's false or anything that's a lie. And that's Satan who wants to maim, kill, and destroy. And our marriages are being destroyed Because many of them are based on lies. It's not about personal happiness. Marriage is about the glory of God. And you'll get the most personal happiness living for the glory of God. Every marriage has its problems. But a biblical marriage has incentives to work it out. Whereas the social contract, if... if, Anything goes wrong, why should I stay and work it out? There's just no benefit for healing. There's no incentive for forgiveness. There's no incentive to actually I can believe and trust in God to help me through the impossible because he's done it before. And scripture's filled with such stories. It's like the, uh, the logical answer with this worldview is I just need to get out of this thing. So you see where it's head. It's headed. So God doesn't keep good things from us. He keeps good things good by giving us beautiful boundaries and beautiful rules to live before him. And I just pray that God would enable us and be our strength to help us as New Covenant Fellowship to think clearly about our relationships, to think clearly How will we raise our kids? What are we going to teach them about the meaning of marriage? Is it something that's beautiful or should they avoid it because of all the hurt and the pain that is out there? Look, God has given us meaning. He's given us purpose. And we would do well to continue to live it and to share it. And God's plan is that by His grace... He has given us truth and he wants us to share it 
Because just like I was lost, believing every lie that came down the pike as a teenager and a young adult, there are others out there that need to hear the truth and be saved from that kind of pain and destructive lifestyle. And believe it or not, you and I are the ones that God has called to do that. It's us. For this area, for this community, for each other. We are the ones. And may God be glorified as we step out in faith and do just that. May God bless the preaching of His Word this morning.